Hello, welcome back to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'm so glad that you're here with me today. Last week, we started talking about the Servant Girl Annihilator case that took place in Austin from 1884 to 1885. And we even talked about how there were so many parallels drawn between the Servant Girl Annihilator and Jack the Ripper. Um, and I talked about how I was surprised at how the Servant Girl Annihilator is not really as well known as Jack the Ripper, even though they were so similar. So today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, but let's do just a short recap before we jump back in. Now, at this point, the killer had already killed two women, Molly Smith and Eliza Shelley. And Eliza Shelley's children had been in the room with her and her oldest son had actually spoken to the man who killed her. And Molly Smith's boyfriend had actually been in the room with her sleeping in the bed next to her, but he had been knocked out and Molly had been drug out of the house. So they still have had no actual witnesses who have seen him because the little boy even said it was dark and he couldn't really get a good look at the man. He just spoke to him. Now, besides this point, he'd killed the two ladies and um, also attacked many other women, but didn't kill them. Really more than anything, it was kind of like he was taking pleasure in just keeping everyone in Austin scared out of their minds. So at this point, the servant women in Austin did not feel safe at all. They were stacking furniture against their doors and barricading themselves into their homes. They were asking men that they trusted to sleep in the house with them, or they weren't even sleeping in their own homes, preferring to sleep on pallets that they made in the kitchens of their employers' homes, thinking that they would be safer there if they weren't in their servants' quarters. Now, on May 10th, five days after Eliza Shelley's murder, Sergeant Chenneville thought that he had finally caught a break and he was going to catch who was doing this. A man named Andrew Rogers came to the police station and said that he thought he knew who had killed Eliza. He said that she and a man named Ike Plummer had a brief romantic relationship after her husband was sent to prison. Rogers said that a few weeks before Eliza's murder, he saw the two of them arguing. Plummer wanted Eliza to loan him some money, but she refused. Rogers also said that on the day of Eliza's murder, he walked by Dr. Johnson's house and saw Plummer and Eliza arguing again. He heard Ike Plummer tell Eliza, I want some money. And Eliza said, I don't have any for you. What I have is for my children. And I don't want you around me anymore. He said Plummer stormed off yelling that he would see her again soon. And Rogers said that he thought he saw a hammer or a hatchet sticking out of Ike Plummer's pocket. So, as usual, Chenneville rounded him up and brought him to the jail on charges of suspicion of murder. But the press would later report that Ike Plummer did not look anything like a murderer. He was tall and gangly with a big friendly smile on his face and didn't seem like he could hurt a fly. And there was no physical evidence linking him to Eliza's murder. 
They didn't find any blood on any of his clothes or anywhere else. His footprints didn't match the ones that were left at the crime scene. And they couldn't find anyone else to back up the story that Rogers had told about the fight. No one else had seen the fight the day of her murder. And no one had heard about them fighting any other time either. So, Chinaville was forced to let him go. Because it was pretty obvious that he hadn't done it. Now, two weeks later, on May 22nd, Robert Wireman heard a low moan that turned into a piercing scream coming from outside in his backyard. Wireman and some other members of the family ran outside and found their 33-year-old cook, Irene Cross, lying in the yard. Her right arm had almost been cut in two. There was a long gash that went around her head from her right eye all the way around back to her right ear. It looked as if someone had tried to scalp her. Irene was still alive, so they carried her into the house. She tried to speak, but was unable to. Chenneville was called again to the scene, but just as before, the dogs were unable to track anyone, and there really wasn't much evidence left to help the police. Now, Irene's nephew had been there at the time, so uh, just like Eliza's sons had been, and Irene's nephew was 12. Now, he said he woke up and saw a man coming into the room. He had a knife in his hand, and he came over to the little boy's bed and told him that he wasn't there to hurt him and to go back to sleep. He then went into Irene's room and the little boy said he was only there for a few minutes and then he ran out the door that led to the backyard where they found Irene. The boys told investigators that the man was a big chunky Negro wearing a wide-brimmed cloth hat, ragged overcoat, blue shirt, and black pants rolled up around his ankles. But again, no shoes. Now, the authorities had started to believe that whoever was doing this chose not to wear any shoes because boots or some other heavy work shoe would make a lot of noise and would alert people to an intruder. So if he snuck in barefoot, it would be quiet, and that way he would detect less attention. Now, again, the police were shocked that a young boy could have seen all of this when it was pitch black at night. But just like Eliza's son, the little Irene's nephew's story never changed. It stayed the same. And I will say that current day investigators have speculated that these boys were probably drugged with something like chloroform to put them to sleep. And that is why they saw the man come in. But then when he told them to go to sleep, they never heard or saw anything else of the actual murder that he'd probably actually drugged them. Now, Irene lived for one more day, but she succumbed to her injuries on the morning of May 25th, and she was never able to say anything that might help the police. An inquest jury ruled that Irene had been killed by parties unknown. The undertaker came and took her to the cemetery, and she was buried close to Molly Smith. Her friends and family came and held a small ceremony for her. And again, the caretaker listed her cause of death as wounds. Now, at this point, the caretaker really did not want to 
write down how terrible things were in Austin. So he preferred to just write something that didn't seem as inflammatory. But at this point, all kinds of rumors were running rampant throughout Austin. And the press wasn't helping either. There was a theory going around that it was a gang. And they decided that this gang must live outside of town and sleep in the caves around the Colorado River. And that they only came into town late at night. And that was why no one knew who they were and couldn't give a description of any of these men. They also decided that there must there must be a killing mania that had swept over the gang. And that was why they were doing these things. So a bunch of men under a crazy killing mania were just running into town at night, killing people and running back out of town. But hey, you know, uh, there were lots of other theories that made the rounds, but they were all pretty ridiculous. And there was really no proof behind any of them. Marshall Lee did his best to sue the citizens of Austin, but on June 2nd, two weeks after Irene Cross was murdered, someone stuck a pistol through the raised window of the servants' quarters window at Henry Talachet's home and fired a shot into the room. The bullet hit a young servant girl in the arm, and Mr. Talachet grabbed his gun and ran to see if he could catch the shooter. But as soon as he opened the door, a bullet flew right past his head and struck the wall and was lodged in the wall on the opposite side of the room. But the shooter ran off before Talashay could get a good look at him. That same night, someone threw a rock into the window of Major Stewart's servant quarters. The same Major Stewart, who back in episode one, had his two servant girls attacked in March. Now those women, after that attack, now remember they weren't killed, but they were scared really badly. And uh, so they had decided that since they were so too scared to sleep alone after that first attack, they had asked another male servant that they trusted to sleep in the room with them. Now, the male servant grabbed his pistol and ran out to see if he could find whoever it was that was throwing rocks. But again, he got away. So, Chinaville and his, Sergeant Chinaville and his men, they started arresting African-American again. African-American men all over again for any little petty crime that he could think of just really grasping at straws, hoping that maybe he would arrest someone and they'd be guilty and all these attacks would stop. But of course that didn't work. And at this time, you know, the police wouldn't even entertain the thought that maybe it was a white man. Maybe it wasn't an African-American man. Maybe it was some white man that had a grudge against servant women, or just enjoyed scaring and torturing people. So the servant women at this point refused to leave their homes at night. And like I said, they were starting to sleep in their employer's home, hoping to be safe and get a little rest because everyone was on high alert and was, and were frightened that either they might get killed or harmed by just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Homeowners themselves had started carrying their guns with them all the time. And if someone just was too close to their window at night, they just stuck the barrel of that gun out the window and and shot first and asked questions later. It didn't matter. Now, by mid-June, all the attacks stopped. 
some people thought that all the shooting had scared the person away or maybe the police had gotten lucky and actually arrested the guy who was doing it. Austin remained peaceful all the way even through July. People celebrated the 4th of July and started to relax again. One newspaper reporter even said that if things stayed this calm, that the police might be able to go on a vacation. Now, by August, people really were starting to calm down. They thought that it was over and they were back out visiting people at night, walking up and down the streets, going to events outside and sitting on their porches again. It was too hot to stay indoors anyway. At this point, it was 100 degrees, even at night, and people did want to be outside. But on August 29th, Austin was thrown into a tailspin again. Rebecca Ramey worked, was a woman who worked for Valentine Weed. He was a businessman who actually lived only two blocks away from where Eliza Shelley had been killed. Rebecca and her 11-year-old daughter, Mary, were sleeping in the kitchen on a pallet in the Weed's house because they didn't feel safe in the servants' quarters anymore. Rebecca was a large woman. She probably weighed around 200 pounds, and she was about 40 years old. She was well-known in the African-American community. Her brother was the first African-American alderman in Austin, so kind of like on the city council. And she had worked for quite a while at the Austin Steam Laundry, but her no-good husband ran off with another woman and left her and Mary on their own. So Rebecca decided that she needed to take a job where she could have Mary with her all the time and look out for her all the time. And so that's when she went to work for the Weed family. Now, Mary was a very bright little girl, and she went to the grammar school in Austin for African-American children in the mornings. And then at lunchtime, she came home and helped her mother in the afternoons. Like I said, she was a very bright little girl, and her family was already planning for her to attend Houston Tillotson College, which was the first African-American college established in Austin for um, African-American people who wanted to attend college. So, you know, these, they had goals for this little girl. Their family was very well known in the community and everyone knew Rebecca and her family. And that night, a man snuck into the weeds kitchen. And I want to take a minute to talk about this. Every attack says that the man snuck in the door. It doesn't say anything about breaking and entering. He obviously was able to waltz right in because he didn't make any noise that would alert neighbors, other people sleeping in the house, or the homeowners who were close by. So I don't know if it just wasn't common to lock your doors in 1884 or if the locks were so easy to pick that he was able to get it open without causing any fuss. But I just kind of wanted to take note of that real quick because it's shocking to me how easily this guy just waltzes right in and out of everyone's homes, no matter where he is. 
Uh, he was carrying a club that was about a foot long with several ounces of lead packed in sand and then wrapped around it in buckskin. Now it had a leather loop attached to the, to one end so that it could be worn around a person's wrist. So it wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't drop it. He walked over to where Rebecca and Mary were laying on the floor asleep and he hit Rebecca in the side of the head with the club and knocked her unconscious. Now, because the club was packed with sand, it didn't make any noise when he, when he hit her. So no one else in the house even heard it. The man then grabbed Mary and took her outside. Early the next morning, before the sun even came up, Rebecca regained consciousness and began to moan. Now, the noises woke up Mr. Weed and his wife, and so they lit a lantern and came downstairs in the kitchen to check on Rebecca to see what had happened. They found her crawling around on the floor on her hands and knees. So she was conscious enough and able enough to get up and at least get up on her hands and knees. But when the weeds were able to shine the lantern on her, they could tell that she was in terrible shape. Her attack had been brutal. There was blood running down her face from two gashes in her head. Her jaw was broken and askew completely off to one side and the front of her forehead had been caved in. She was barely able to even talk, but she did manage to get out to Mr. Weed that she was, that she felt sick. So she was so out of it that she didn't even realize she'd been attacked. She thought she was sick and that's why she felt so bad and couldn't get up and walk around. Now, Mr. Weed, he saw the club lying on the floor and so he went and grabbed his shotgun and went outside to look for Mary because when he asked uh, uh, Rebecca if she knew where Mary was or what happened to him, all she was able to do was shake her head. She couldn't answer anymore at this point. So he, when he ran outside, he yelled at his neighbor next door, Stephen Jaqua, and told him that Rebecca had been attacked and that Mary had been taken. He asked him to come over and help him check the shed in the backyard. Now, this is just a regular storage shed where tools and things were kept. But the two men went over and opened the door and they found poor Mary lying on the floor of the shed. Now, she wasn't dead yet, but it was obvious that she had been hurt very badly. Blood was leaking out of both of her ears. And every time she took a breath, there were bloody bubbles coming out of her nose. So Weed told Jockwa to stay in the yard and not let anyone in. He was smart enough to know that if they let people come walking all through the yard, any clues there might be would be tromp, would just be trampled and there would be nothing left for anything, nothing left for the police to even look at. And uh, he told his wife to go get Dr. Johnson to come and try to take care of Rebecca and Mary. So Weed left and went to Sergeant Chenneville, who only lived about two blocks away from them. Now, Dr. Johnson arrived and he also brought Dr. Swearingen with him also. They checked Mary and they knew that there was nothing that they could do for her. The man had taken some kind of long iron rod and jabbed it into Mary's ear so hard that it had pierced her eardrum and actually then pierced her brain. He then pulled it out of her ear and jabbed it into 
her other ear on the other side of her head the same way. And so he basically lobotomized this little girl and then just ran off and left her there to die. I mean, I don't really have anything else to say. It's just awful, awful. So Dr. Johnson was a kindly man and he sat down on the ground in the shed and put Mary's head in his lap and just let her lay there. And then after just a few minutes, she made one little final ooh sound and passed away. So next to the gate in the alley near the weeds backyard, some officers found some footprints in the sound in the sand. So Sergeant Chenoville's dogs actually were able to find a scent this time. And they ran two blocks down to a stable where they found an African-American man sleeping in the hayloft who was named Tom Allen. Now, you know Chenoville, he automatically arrested him on suspicion of murder and took him off to jail. At this time, a crowd had started to gather because people were waking up and getting ready to go to church. And they were walking by and saw all this that was going on in Mr. Weed's yard. And they watched as Mary's body was carried out and loaded into the undertaker's wagon to be taken to the county dead room for her autopsy. And then they loaded Rebecca up and took her to the hospital. Now, as people were gathering and standing around, reporters, of course, had also started to gather. And Mr. Weed told the people and the reporters that Rebecca was a good woman and a good mother and that Mary was a quiet, good girl with good habits. And he then offered a reward to help catch Mary and Rebecca, Mary's killer and Rebecca's attacker. Seven hours after Valentine Weed had found Mary and Rebecca, Marshall Lee showed up at the Weed home. It was Sunday and it had been his day off and not one single person, not any of the other police officers came to let him know what was going on. So, and in fact, really, Sergeant Cheneville and the other officers had been fine leaving him out of the loop. Marshall Lee talked to Mr. Weed for a few minutes and inspected the shed and the footprints that had been left behind. And then he left and went back to the police station. This had to be completely mortifying for him. Here he is. He's supposed to be in charge of the Austin police force. And yet now for a second time, he had been completely left out of an investigation. Uh, tensions were rising in the police department because people really believed that uh, Marshall Lee was not um, really the right man for the job. They didn't think he had enough experience. And, you know, the city council, they had hired him really more because of his educational background. He didn't have direct law enforcement experience, but they picked him because they had wanted someone calmer, more methodical, more reasonable than the last city marshal because he had been so unpredictable. He really kind of preferred the shoot first and ask questions later method. So they wanted someone who was a little bit more respectable and calm, but the community was starting to complain and really were asking for him to be replaced. So arresting Tom Allen had gone nowhere. Uh, his footprints did match the ones in the alley, but that could also be because 
He lived two blocks down. Now, it did say, and I quote, whoever did it had a peculiar shaped toe on one foot. And they said it was Tom Allen's footprint. But he lived two blocks down. So, you know, he could have just been walking down the alley. And when they found him, there was not one single drop of blood on him or anywhere near him. So, I mean, he didn't really look like a person who could have done it. Uh, now, of course, Chenneville subjected him to one of his interrogations. But even under all of that, Tom, all just like all the others, would say that he had no grudge against Rebecca or Mary and that he would never want to hurt either of them. And he also said that he knew nothing about who might have wanted to hurt them or, or kill Mary. So on Monday, Mary's body was placed in a small coffin and taken to the cemetery. The cemetery caretaker had picked out a pretty spot underneath a live oak tree for her. He showed the mourners where to go, and then he went into his office and got out his ledger. This time, when he wrote cause of death in his ledger, he didn't try to make it sound better than it was. At this point, there was no reason to. The whole city knew what was going on. In fact, the whole state of Texas knew what was going on. So in the column for cause of death, he wrote murdered. Now, every newspaper in Texas were was running story was running a story or multiple stories about the brutal attacks and murders in Austin. And many of them were criticizing the Austin officials for not figuring out who was behind the murders. One article even said we pay for protection but yet there is none. Absolutely none. And they wanted to replace Marshall Lee. The citizens were terrified and they wanted something done. Now, Mayor Robertson knew that his job as mayor was on the line, too. Elections were coming up around the corner, and his opponent was already using the unsolved murders against him. You know, he was saying if it was up to him, he would have already figured out who this was. There would have been extra patrols out on the street, and they would have caught whoever it was. So, Mayor Robertson hired the Noble Commercial Detective Agency from Houston, and he told them that he wanted them to send their best detective, Captain Mike Hennessy. In 1885, most large cities had a private detective agency. Austin's was called the Capital Detective Agency. Business owners hired detective agencies to track down people who had stolen merchandise from them, um, from their stores, or to provide nighttime security for their businesses but they mainly looked into crimes that police did not have the manpower or the time to solve. Sometimes banks would even hire detective agencies to track down someone who'd written a hot check and then had run away, had run away. But in Houston, the owners of the noble commercial detective agency were advertising themselves as the Texas equivalent of the famous Chicago based Pinkerton national detective agency, which had been open since 1850. Their motto was known throughout America. And their motto said, the eye that never sleeps. The agency was responsible for lots of high profile arrests. And one of the most famous was the Pinkerton agency arrested the famous outlaw, Jesse James and the Dalton gang. So to equate yourself 
to the Pinkerton agency at this time was saying a lot. Captain Mike Hennessy was the agency's top, top detective. He was considered an exit expert tracker, and it was said that he could locate people that no one else was able to find. He claimed that he had even snuck into a city and found a man who had been in hiding for longer than a week. So the city alderman agreed to pay for Hennessy to come to Austin, and he arrived in Austin on September 9th with his two assistants, George Hanna and Ike Himmel. The team immediately went to the police station and were brought up to speed on everything that had happened so far. They then revisited all the crime scenes and re-interviewed all of the women who had survived attacks to see if there was any information that had been left out or maybe overlooked. At night, they dressed in costume and went to saloons uh, in the seedier parts of town and eavesdropped on conversations. And then, at the end of the night, they would go back to their hotels and take copious notes and discuss what they had learned and compare things. Now, their anonymity didn't last long because soon the press figured out where they were staying and camped out at their hotel. And so people from all parts of Austin were coming to get a look at the detectives. Children came to see if they could pet their bloodhound, and the ladies came so that they could swoon in front of Captain Hennessy. But Captain Hennessy and his two assistants loved the attention. In fact, they didn't turn any of it away. He was very bold, and he told the reporters that they were drawing a net around a number of suspicious characters and that developments may be looked for at any time. He said that they would find the killers. All they needed was a little time. But by September 22nd, they hadn't given any updates, and the press was getting a little snarky about it all. In fact, the press was reporting that they didn't think that the three detectives from Houston had any better idea who the killer might be than the local Austin police. But Hennessy said to give them time that good police, good detective work took patience. And so, on the last weekend of September... Hennessy and his team decided to go back to Houston for the weekend so they could catch up on paperwork. And that is when everything went to hell in a handbasket. On the night of Sunday, I'm sorry, not Sunday, on Saturday, September 27th, two African-American servant women who lived in the servant quarters of a home on Rio Grande Street heard a noise. One of the women saw a man standing at their door and he whispered to her, I'll kill you if you open your mouth. The woman screamed anyway, and the man ran. When Sergeant Chenneville arrived, she couldn't give him any physical description of the man at all, except to say that he sounded white. The next evening, Sunday, September 28th, a cook began screaming because she heard a noise outside her window. But again, she had no physical description of anyone and who or who it might be who was making that noise outside her window. Now, an hour or so later, W.B. Dunham, some of these names are tongue twisters, thought he heard a muffled cry coming from his servants' quarters in the backyard of his Austin home. Now, Dunham's cook was a pretty young African-American woman named Gracie Vance, and she lived in the servants' quarters with her boyfriend, Orange Washington. And uh, 
two other young servant women named Patsy Gibson and Lucinda Body. Now, they didn't usually live with Gracie because these two ladies worked for other families in Austin. But because everyone was so afraid to sleep alone, they were all sleeping together, hoping that it would be safer that way. Now, Mr. Dunham heard uh, some more noise and he figured that Orange and Gracie were arguing. So he stepped out on his back porch and he shouted at the couple to quiet down. And he went back to bed and drifted back off to sleep. But several minutes later, he heard another noise. And this time it sounded like a groan. So he grabbed his pistol and he walked out into the yard just in time to see Lucinda Body, one of the girls staying with Gracie, stagger out of the servant's quarters out into the yard. And her head was bloody and she was just seemed completely disoriented. She was staggering around and she screamed to him, Mr. Dunham, we are all dead. So Dunham ordered her to lay on her back on the steps of his house. And right about that time, his next door neighbor, Harry Duff, came outside into the yard holding a lantern. He told Mr. Dunham that he too had been woken up by a noise and that he had called the police department. So the two men stepped into the servants' quarters and Duff shined the lantern into the cabin. And there he saw Patsy Gibson, who was lying on her side, barely alive, with blood just flowing from her head. Orange was, uh, Gracie's boyfriend, was already dead. He was lying face, face down on the floor between the bed and the wall in a pool of his own blood. And there was a bloodied axe on the bedspread between him. But Gracie was nowhere to be found. So Chenneville and Officer James Connor rode up to the house on horseback. Now, holding lanterns, they followed a bloody trail that led out of the servants' quarters over a backyard fence and into the backyard of a house that butted up to the Dunhams. Now, that yard belonged to a family named the Hotchkiss family. And that backyard was about 50 yards in length, so about half a football field. And they used it like a small horse pasture. Chenneville and Connor came almost right up to the Hotchkiss stable. And one of them stumbled over something soft. When they shined the lantern on it, the men stared at what they realized was Gracie's corpse. She had been beaten so viciously in the face that there was really nothing left but bone and skin and blood. Her head was off center of her body and her hair and nightgown were covered in blood. Lying next to her body was a brick covered in blood and bits of flesh from her face. Now, the only thing that wasn't left bloody on her entire body was a beautiful silver open face watch that was hanging from a delicate silver chain that was wrapped around her wrist. And that's really how they were able to identify her was because they knew that was Gracie's watch. Now, suddenly from an upstairs window, in the Hotchkiss 
household, the elderly matriarch of the family, Hannah Hotchkiss, yelled out, there he goes. And and she said something really bad. And I'm not even going to repeat it. But basically, she said he was running off to the African-American part of town. Now, she had seen someone or she thought she had seen someone running towards this neighborhood west of her house. So Chinaville and Connor fired shots into the darkness, uh, probably about eight in all is what it's reported, and hoping that maybe one of their stray bullets might hit the guy who was running off. Well, you already know, since it's unsolved, they didn't hit anything. The two police officers ran back to the Dunham home, got on their horses, and turned around and took off hoping that maybe they would catch someone running. Of course, they couldn't see anybody. And the guy vanished again. So more police officers showed up to the Dunham's house, including the Travis County Sheriff, Malcolm Hornsby, and a couple of his deputies. Marshall Lee came too. I mean, he was trying to reestablish the fact that he was in charge of things and they were not going to leave him out anymore. He was trying to save face at this point. So the officers, some officers began searching nearby homes and servant qu servants' quarters looking for any lead they might could possibly find. Now, except for Mrs. Hotchkiss, though, no one else had seen a word or seen a word, heard a word, <laughs> sorry, y'all, or heard anything. So the officers rode into the African-American neighborhood hoping that they might find a man, find some man covered in blood or maybe that someone had been awake and seen someone running into the streets. But all the houses were closed up. There were no lanterns burning, no fires, and everyone seemed to be asleep. So Dr. C.O. Weller, who was a doctor that lived in the neighborhood, uh, came to the Dunham's house and did quick examinations of Lucinda and Patsy. And he discovered that both women had been struck one time in the head with some kind of a blunt object, probably the back of the axe that he had found in the servant's quarters itself. So they thought he probably, it was kind of a weapon of convenience. They think he just found it and decided to use it on all four of the victims. Uh, he studied Orange's wounds and noticed that he had been hit at least twice in the head. And then that must have been when Gracie was carried uh, out of the house. Now, they brought what was left of poor Gracie in from the Hotchkiss backyard and placed her on the bed. Dr. Weller noted that besides having the same head wounds as all the others, she'd also been hit at least 12 times in the face with that brick they found. I mean, whoever this guy was, he's just angry. He's vicious. He's violent. And he's got some score to settle, whatever it is. I mean, it seems very personal. Even though these people are random and all over the city, something's fueling this guy's anger. Because why else would you just so savagely beat people and do the horrific things he's done to them? Uh, now, one blow had caught her on the bridge of her nose and it shattered the bone 
and the bone of her nose. Uh, and um, the other blows he had smashed against her temples, her jaw, her cheek, her eyes. I mean, he wanted to obliterate her face is what it boils down to. And uh, another, I mean, there was nothing left of her. Uh, poor thing. It, I can't even imagine the sight that they, the sight of her. I, I mean, it had to be something completely traumatizing. And one reporter even later said that her face was like jelly. Now, inside the servants' quarters, Chinneville and the other officers snipped off ends of cigars and uh, smoked them to try to keep the smell of all the blood out of their noses so they that they could remain in the servants' quarters to try to find any clues and maybe even figure out what had happened inside that room. Because again, someone had silently snuck into that room, quickly killed Orange, hit Lucinda and Patsy, and then hit Gracie and dragged her out with hardly any sound. And, you know, they were they were trying to find figure out, did Orange... Maybe Orange continued to struggle. Maybe that's why he struck him a second time instead of once like he did the other two women. Uh, the killer then, of course, had dragged Gracie out of the cabin, lifted her over the back fence, and taken her all the way into the Hotchkiss yard where he had beaten her so terribly. And... uh. The crazy thing is, and this is kind of something that ties back to Jack the Ripper. This man is able to do, to commit these crimes in mere minutes, brutal, vicious crimes in mere minutes, in almost complete darkness. The police estimated that this whole crime probably didn't last more than 10 minutes. And that's one of the parallels that has been drawn, not only how vicious and brutal the attacks were, but also that the killer was able to do them quickly, silently, and and in complete darkness and not be noticed at all. Now, of course, by sunup, the news of the attacks was flying through town. You know, there were crowds at the Dunham home. There were reporters everywhere. And at this point, it had almost really become uh, like an event. People were setting up um, carts with food so that people could come to the murder scene and witness it. And uh, hoping to see the murdered people. Now, eventually, a path was cleared so that Gracie and Orange could be carried away to the city county hospital's dead room. And then Lucinda and Patsy were taken to the hospital to join Rebecca Ramey because Rebecca was still holding on at this point. She had not passed away. And um, at some point in the morning, the police learned that 
an African-American man named Doc Woods had tried to win Gracie over and had gotten upset when she, of course, rebuffed his affections because she uh, was in a relationship with Orange. So, you know, Chinaville and his men, along with Marshall Lee this time, they did include him, went, uh, rode out to his, to his little tiny house about eight miles south of Austin. And they rode out to the farm and found him picking cotton in one of his fields. And he seemed completely shocked that anyone would think that he had anything to do with these murders. He said he hadn't left his house the previous night, but the officers did notice some blood on the bottom of his shirt. So they arrested Woods for suspicion of murder and hauled him back to Austin. And of course, as word spread through town of the arrest, a group of men who were drunk and full of liquid courage began making plans that they were going to march to the jail and they were going to take Woods away. And they're going to string string him up. They're going to hang him uh, from a lamp pole. Now, the uh, luckily the mob was stopped and Woods remained safe. But within hours of them arresting Woods, the case was already the case against him was already falling apart. They called in a doctor who examined him and discovered that the blood on the bottom of his shirt was actually from an open wound that came from Wood's genital area, and the wound was a result from an untreated venereal disease. And um, on top of that, the owner of the farm where Woods worked confirmed that Woods had been there and that he had, in fact, seen him at 10 p.m. that night And then also saw him the next morning at 4 a.m. when all the workers had gone out to start their shift in the fields. So he was cleared. And we are going to stop there today. And I should be able to wrap everything up uh, next week in part three. I would love to hear what you guys think so far. So let me know your thoughts. You can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com or you can also find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. Um, I'd love to hear from you. So please remember to rate, leave a review, subscribe, and tell a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. And I'll see all of you next week. Bye.